everyone. Today is May 12th, 2021, and welcome to another edition of The Well-Read Investor, the podcast that profits your mind and your money. I'm your host, Mike Hansen. Today we're talking history. In fact, a period of history most, even universities, tend to gloss over. The period in the West commencing after the fall of the Roman Empire and leading up, more or less, to the Renaissance, the Dark Ages. Or should I say the Light Ages? We've got historian Seb Falk to tell us why the Dark Ages is a misnomer, and in fact some great innovation and technology was developed through this era, not to mention advancements in science. Seb's book, The Light Ages, is a wide-ranging history of medieval science told through the life of one extraordinary monk, John of Westwick. The book follows the twists and turns of John's life as a yeoman and novice, a scholar in exile, a crusader, and an astronomer. It's an engaging story, and I picked up a lot by reading it. You might even think of Westwick's spirit as similar to the aspiring stock analyst, questing for the secrets of market behavior in a world that's far too murky. Seb teaches medieval history and the history of science at Cambridge University and specializes in astronomy, navigation, and mathematics from their ancient origins to modern developments. It's this technological part of things that I found the most interesting. For example, Seb calls the astrolabe the smartphone of its era. It allowed practitioners to know the date and time from anywhere they traveled. It was aesthetically designed and served as sort of a status symbol, so much like today's iPhones. And it's got a literary history. Geoffrey Chaucer, of Canterbury Tales fame, himself wrote a treatise on how to use an astrolabe. Seb's book prompted me, in fact, to buy one of these things, and you can get a good one for $50 or less on Amazon, and I'm in the midst of learning how to use it, albeit clumsily. Advances in astronomy, mathematics, and much else happened in the light ages, and it serves as a reminder that today's technology will one day, too, be outmoded and seem apparently barbaric. Investors should take note. Developments in how we measure the world change how we see it. And with so much data today, you can see the parallels between how our beliefs are shaped and what we can measure. Enjoy this one. Seb is a gifted speaker, writer, and storyteller, and we had a lot of fun doing this. Make sure to follow us as well on social media, on Twitter at WellReadPod and Instagram at WellReadInvestorPod, or just Google the WellRead Investor to see what I'm reading, reviewing, and talking about each week in and out. Now, here's our conversation with Seb Falk. Seb Falk, so great to speak with you to talk about your book, The Light Ages. Thank you for inviting me. Really enjoyed the book. I think it really has a place in the history of science, has something to say about the philosophy of science. All sorts of interesting stories in here as well. So let's just start by telling our readers and listeners, what is the thesis of the book? Why the light ages versus the dark ages? Well, of course, the title comes from people's expectations that the Middle Ages, by which I'm really referring to Europe in the period from about 500 to 1500 AD, so a long thousand years of history, that period was a dark age, that nothing really interesting for science happened in that time. And I wanted to challenge people's expectations by showing them not just that there were important and useful advances in that time, scientific instruments, discoveries in how the world worked and important achievements, but also to show how science was really part of the culture of the period. So for me, it's not a science book, it's a history book. It's a book 
that shows how people in the Middle Ages looked at the world around them and tried to make sense of the world around them in their own way, in ways that sometimes we might think are a bit quirky or odd or, or unusual or unscientific, but in their own way were logical and fitted with the way that people viewed the world. So it's really trying to put science back into the history of the Middle Ages and to show that the Middle Ages wasn't just this time of plague and wars and kings and queens, but actually it was a time that people produced really interesting and fascinating ideas. So for people who are interested in science, it hopefully gets them to look again at a period that has been written off as this millennium gap, as Carl Sagan put it. For people who are interested in medieval history, it hopefully will get them to think again about aspects of the period that they perhaps haven't really considered before. And you're a medievalist and a historian. One of the things I find is that the best historians are some of the best writers of our era these days as well. And I thought you tell very good tales here, but the structure of the book is not necessarily a linear narrative one. It's a series of stories. So tell us about the composition of the book and the choices there. What I really wanted to do was to immerse people in the science of the period. And one of the things that is often attractive about the Middle Ages, but makes it quite difficult for people to get their heads around, is that it is in many ways quite alien. And what I really wanted people to do was to understand not just that there were interesting ideas, but how to do it. So I really wanted people to kind of see for themselves how advanced medieval science was. I really wanted people to see for themselves why astrology, which we now think of as debunked pseudoscience, was in its own time logical. And so in order to do that, I really had to immerse people in it. But I didn't want it to feel like a science lesson. So I structured it around a biography of a real-life monk, an ordinary guy who had this extraordinary adventurous life, a monk called John Westwick, who lived in the second half of the 14th century in England, but also traveled across the sea, went on crusade. And, you know, he had this very adventurous, interesting life. And by using his life, I not only had some interesting stories to tell to kind of break up some of the science so that people didn't find it too overwhelming, but also I had a structure so that people could learn the science as he learned it. So he's growing up in the fields not far from London. And how did people use astronomy? to organize their farming year? How do people understand the seasons in order to know when to plant their crops and harvest their crops? And then, you know, he goes on crusade. And so I talk about navigation and what do people know about mapping and when did the compass come in? So I tie all of the science to this guy's story. And so that hopefully makes it more interesting and accessible to somebody who's sitting in their armchair on a Friday evening and might tolerate a few pages of trigonometry, but don't want to be completely overwhelmed by it. I enjoyed the book. And in fact, I enjoyed it when it gets technical. I actually learned how to use an astrolabe as a result of your book. But tell us about yourself. Tell us a little bit about your career and how you got interested in this topic. Yeah, I mean, I've always been interested in communicating history to a general audience. So I am an academic. I work at Cambridge University. But before I became an academic, I was a history teacher. And I taught in secondary schools in this country, in the UK and in Canada as well. And so I was always interested in kind of making complex ideas accessible. And I also have never really enjoyed the way subjects are really divided. I don't like the way that history is humanities and science is something separate. And people who are interested in history can kind of ignore the sciences. I've always been interested in all these things. And so I studied history of science. I did a master's and a PhD at Cambridge. And I got to the end of my PhD. And I kind of thought, I really want people to know about this stuff because academics all understand that there was really interesting science happening in the Middle Ages. But so many people out there still think 
that everybody in the Middle Ages believed the world was flat. They didn't. Like any serious scholar knew the world was round and they had plenty of textbooks to prove it. One of the things that we do in my book is we talk through some of the explanations of how you can prove the world is round without having to go on a spaceship and look back towards the Earth. So I was just really interested in getting the ideas that I had investigated in my PhD and bringing them to a general audience. And one thing that I studied and discovered in my PhD was about this monk, John Westwick. The manuscript, he wrote a number of manuscripts, and the one that he wrote that's most important and most famous is a description of how to make a planetary computer. So a device to find the positions of the planets at any time in the past or future. And it's kind of a model of the planetary theory of the day, which allowed you to calculate the positions of the planets really extremely accurately. And this manuscript, which was discovered in the 1950s, for a long time, historians thought it might have been written by Geoffrey Chaucer. So it was quite high profile because Chaucer, English poet, father of English literature, a very famous man who was interested in astronomy. And then another scholar in 2014, a woman named Carrie Anna Rand from Norway, proved that this wasn't by Chaucer. This was by this monk, John Westwick. And that set me off on this adventure of finding out why this monk invented this astronomical instrument and how an ordinary monk would have learned about this stuff. This is the period when the European universities were founded. And it's quite possible or probable that John Westwick would have attended Oxford University. And so I talk about you know the lives of monks at university, what they studied, what they drank, what they ate, how were the fights they got into, and all that kind of thing too. One of the things that strikes me about this is that it's sort of a very practical era of science in a certain manner of speaking. And, you know, you refer to the astrolabe as sort of the smartphone of its day. And I want to talk more about that, especially about Chaucer. But what, in your view, are some of the great grand achievements of this era? One of the hallmarks of the era, you're right, is a kind of attempt to make things practical, to make things user-friendly. So one of the criticisms is there weren't a huge number of great theoretical achievements in this period. And of course, you can challenge that. But to an extent, it is true that people in the Middle Ages saw themselves as building on the achievements of the ancient Greeks and also on the achievements of scholars in the Islamic world. So they were building on other people's previous ideas, but they were making these ideas more user friendly. So they were really keen on their gadgets. The astrolabe, like you were talking about, is a key gadget of the Middle Ages and it develops out of ancient Greece. It's developed in the Islamic world and then it comes to Europe where it's further developed. Of course, there are more practical advances in the period, things like advances in milling technology, crank and camshaft, the clock. The first mechanical clocks were arguably developed in medieval Europe. And the most advanced clock up to that date was devised by Abbot of St. Albans, Richard of Wallingford, a really interesting character who died of leprosy in 1335. And he crops up in my book as well. So there's clocks, there's the universities, as I've mentioned, there's advances in technology, both practical technology and scientific instruments like this one. We're doing this podcast actually by video. And Seb, you've got an astrolabe in your hands. And in fact, That's I'll, right. I'll tell our listeners, you've got a couple of very good videos on YouTube actually describing how these things work. And it helped me out a lot because in fact, <laughs> I did go to the Chaucer text to see if I could figure it out and certainly was challenging. So let's talk about that for a moment. Chaucer wrote a treatise on the astrolabe ostensibly to his son. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So it opens Little Lewis, My Son. Uh, and it's addressed to his 10-year-old son. And he says, you're a 10-year-old boy. You're smart enough now to figure out an astrolabe. So he's laying down the challenge for his readers. And I'm doing the same thing, right? It's not really clear 
whether this really was written for Lewis Chaucer, even in fact, what evidence there is that Lewis Chaucer was a real person is kind of arguable. And some historians have thought that this is kind of like a astrolabes for dummies. If a kid can understand this, so can you. <laughs> and what Chaucer did was he wrote this in English, in the growing vernacular Middle English of a period when people are getting more patriotic and people are using English rather than Latin. And he took earlier instruction manuals and he wrote his own one that was just incredibly easy to understand. And of course, for modern readers, you've got to get over the fact it's written in Middle English and some of the explanations perhaps aren't as accessible as we would want. But it is a very good way of understanding this instrument, which is a model of the heavens. So it's a clock and it's an astronomical computer and it's a surveying device all rolled into one. So you can tell the time, you can work out when a star is going to rise, you can work out how high a building is, you can work out where you are, you can do all these things. That's why I call it the medieval smartphone, because it's a multifunctional device. It doesn't do things that couldn't be done before. You know, astronomers could do all those things before the astrolabe was invented. But what it does is it condenses them into this neat little package. It's a neat little gadget. And just like smartphones today, most users don't take advantage of their full potential. Most users don't do all of the things that a smartphone can do. They just use a handful of the most popular functions. And a smartphone then also becomes a status symbol. And an astrolabe in the same way was a status symbol. People wanted to have the latest one, the best one. And they're very beautiful things, or they can be. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people probably would have owned an astrolabe that wasn't so beautiful, but they don't survive. The ones that survive in museums are the beautiful ones. And they vary in size. They're usually made of brass. They can sometimes be as small as the palm of your hand, but they can be even 24 inches in diameter. But it's a grid of stars that moves over this projection, over this grid of the sky. And so you can watch the stars rise and set, and you can watch the sun rise and set. And once you've got the hang of it, the basic functions are pretty easy to figure out. But when you look at it, it looks like some secret that's going to tell you the mysteries of the world. And of course, people in the period too thought that. Well, and it's got its astrological features to it as well, right? I mean, you can figure out what sign you're under with an astrolabe. I suppose that's why some moderns probably condescend toward it, right? Yeah. And it's easy to forget that astrology was taken extremely seriously at sure. the time. It stands to reason, really, for people in the time, the sun heats up the earth, the moon controls the tides. Why shouldn't other planets also affect the earth? If they affect the weather, then they might affect your health. And if they affect your health, then they might affect your mood. And if they affect your mood, well, then they might affect your behavior and other people's behavior. In a world where people are looking for explanations for things, just as we do today, astrology is one of those explanations, but it's not the only one. So when the plague comes along and hits Europe in the 1340s, people ask for different explanations, but they don't just pick one. They say, yes, it may be God's punishment. They say, yes, it may be bad air, environmental causes, some kind of stagnation or contagion in the air. And they say, oh, well, you know, maybe there's some kind of astrological conjunction. And they say, well, in 1345, there was this great conjunction, Jupiter, Mars and Saturn all came together in the sky. And maybe that caused the plague that we're seeing. People have different kinds of competing explanations for things. It's so true. I mean, one of the things I want to get to with you is the philosophy of science and how it just seems to me that we're having the same debates today, but the content of them has changed. Before we go there, though, I do want to ask you, as a medievalist and a historian, particularly with this era, how much in the way of languages do you have to study and which ones were most relevant for a book like this? Languages are incredibly useful if you want to access different sources. For me, 
the main language of science in the Middle Ages was Latin. And then Middle English was essential. So I tried to pack the book with a lot of poetry because I wanted to show how science was part of the culture of the day. So how Chaucer writes in his poetry about science, how John Gower, Chaucer's friend and rival, put science in his poetry and other people as well. And so the more languages you have, the more you can bring that in. There is some Middle French in there as well. Arabic becomes very important because people are bringing ideas from the Middle East and embracing them. And if you really want to understand how those ideas were adopted, you need to have access to that. And there are still many texts in Latin and in Arabic that are in manuscripts in libraries and exist in one or a dozen copies, but have never been formally published. Of course, these days they're being digitized and put online, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily easy to read or easy to access. You know, I have studied Arabic. My Arabic is not as good as I would like it to be, but I'm working on it. So I think, you know, the more languages you can get, the better and the more rounded picture you have of the period. Yeah. Tell me about the importance of the Middle East and India in this period, because it's actually a very vibrant period in that part of the world at this time, is it not? Yeah, that's right. The golden age of Islamic science. The Middle East is fairly straightforward, except the trouble is that the Islamic world, as sometimes people call it, is not confined to the Middle East. One of the greatest, richest parts of Islamic culture in the Middle Ages was in Spain and North Africa, which cities like Seville and Cordoba and Granada were incredibly rich and culturally vibrant cities. And so the Islamic world stretched from the Mediterranean, from Spain all the way to India. And not all the people who were practicing science there were Muslims, there were Christians, there were Jews, and they weren't all speaking Arabic either, although most of the science of the period was done in Arabic. There were also people who spoke other languages as well. So it's a kind of complicated cultural picture. But the great heyday of Islamic science and scientific culture is the 8th, 9th, 10th centuries, the period just around and leading up to the millennium, uh, up to the year 1000, when scholars in Baghdad, above all under the Abbasid Caliphate, translated texts, scientific ideas from India, from ancient Greece, brought them together and studied them incredibly intensively. So you've got more or less household names like Avicenna, less well-known names like Ibn al-Haytham and al-Biruni, living all around the same time and intensively studying and spreading knowledge. And there's this incredible culture of translating and studying and developing ideas. And those ideas get passed into Western Europe in the 12th century. And really, they are instrumental in the foundation of the universities, because what happens is the ideas of the ancient Greeks, particularly philosophers like Plato, Aristotle, and astronomers, people like Ptolemy, who lived in the second century AD in Alexandria, their ideas were lost to Europe, but they were picked up and developed and enhanced and refined and built on in the Islamic world. And those developed ideas are picked up again in Europe and translated into Latin by scholars who go to Spain, but also southern Italy, to learn Arabic and study. And those are really the foundation of the Renaissance. You look at Copernicus, by some accounts, the first modern scientific thinker. But a lot of his scientific ideas, certainly the geometry that made his heliocentric cosmos possible, came from Islamic scholars. And they were building on ideas from India as well. Of course, the numbers we use today, the numbers zero to nine, we call them Arabic numerals, but really they're Indian numerals or Hindu Arabic numerals. And they came out of India. So there's a lot more transmission than people often realize and a lot more free flow of ideas. Of course, it takes longer 
in a world without printing, but it does happen. I'm so glad you said all of that because for my honeymoon some years ago now, we went to the Alhambra in the southern part of That's Spain, beautiful. where I learned yeah, about yeah. much of that. Works like Shakespeare's Othello made a lot more sense. Mm. And certainly I learned a ton about how some of the great Arabic scholars were great Platonists and Aristotelians. Let's go towards science here a little bit, though, because you really advocate studying history, science as philosophy and history, which I really agree with because it has this feature to it where it teaches humility. It also teaches that today's context is not yesterday's context, and it won't be the future's context. And in fact, all the great logic of today, a lot of it's going to end up being false. So what was the approach to science in the medieval times? It was a mixture with religion and art. Would you agree, or how would you characterize the first question is to say, well, what is science? Because we all know what science is, but actually, if you start to define it and you really try and pin it down, it becomes almost impossible to define. If you define science by its content or by the way that ideas are developed, there are all kinds of curious boundary sciences. If you define science by its practices, again, different sciences are included or excluded. Psychology of science is economics of science. If those things are sciences, what separates them from social sciences, including sociology or history. There are kind of edge cases that challenge what science is today and in the past. In the past, in the Middle Ages, the Latin word scientia meant any kind of system of knowledge. So theology was a science in the Middle Ages, and it just meant something that you study systematically. It didn't have this exclusivity around understanding nature, which of course nature itself is a slightly problematic concept. You know, what is natural and what do we include and exclude when we're talking about that too? So for people in the Middle Ages, there was an assumption of Christians and also Muslims that they were studying cosmos created by God. And so really the ultimate purpose of studying this was to get closer to the mind of God. So there's no conflict between religion and science. In fact, those two things really are pulling together because the more you understand about creation, the more you understand about the world for their money God had created, the better you understand God and the better Christian or Muslim you are. So the idea that religion and science were in conflict is a complete myth, is absolutely false. And so they're trying to understand in whatever way they can. But from an epistemological point of view, in terms of how people get their ideas, the understanding is somewhat different from what we have today, because science today crudely assumes that you just kind of look around you and you try and explain how something comes to be the way it is by observing and getting as many observations as you can, and then trying to come up with some kind of hypothesis. But the problem with that is a problem that philosophers have grappled with for centuries, is how do you know how many observations is enough? When you conduct a scientific study, how do you know what your ideal sample size is? That's to put it in modern terms. People didn't think about it like that in the Middle Ages. But the way that they got around that problem of saying, I'm going to say that all trees lose their leaves in the winter. And I can see behind you, you've got some lovely coniferous trees. Are you in Washington State there? We are, in fact, in Washington. Yeah, yeah. There we are. Yeah. Now, where I live, most of the trees are deciduous. They lose their leaves in the winter. So if I say all of the trees lose their leaves in the winter, and that is based on all the trees that I have ever seen. Scientifically, I have proven through my observations that trees always lose their leaves in the winter. Now, the question is, how do you know that you've seen enough trees? And how do you know, how do I know that when I say something is a tree, something is a leaf, you agree with me, you've seen the same thing. 
the answer that philosophers came up with was that you make your observations, you make your assumptions as simple as possible. You base them on things that are unarguably true, the basic principles and axioms of mathematics, geometry, straight lines, things, circles, things that people can agree on and define and can't be argued with. And then you build up logically from there. So rather than basing your science on observations, because although, of course, everything we know ultimately does come to us through our senses, rather than basing our theories on sensory experiences, which may be unreliable, we base them on things that are logically unarguable. And then we have much stronger foundations for our theories. The problem with that is you can only get you so far, because the more complex theories you want to have, the more complicated and arguable assumptions you come up with. And then if you have one flawed assumption, the whole edifice might collapse. And of course, the flawed assumption of astronomy was that everything has to move in perfect circles. And of course, we now know that the planets and the Earth don't move in perfect circles, they move in ellipses. So without that assumption, all of your astronomy is flawed. But in terms of logic and epistemology, it makes a lot of sense to do science like that. For an investor, in fact, this is one of the key problems, is that the number of observations and what people can even agree upon continues to be a very thorny problem, and I don't think it ever goes away. In tying things back to today, it seems to me, and we touched on this already, that there's just as many differing opinions, just as many science deniers today as there were back then, in a certain manner of speaking. What parallels come to mind about that time and today, and what may be different about today as well? The parallel that I'd like to bring out most strongly is that people don't agree, right? There are lots of competing views, lots of competing opinions. And I think the Middle Ages is often held up as being a time of dogma, a time when people believed what they were told to believe. And that is really not the case. There are people today who believe that the earth is flat. And so in a way, the richest parallel is that any era has its clever thinkers. I won't say geniuses because I don't think their concept of genius is particularly helpful. I think, you know, we have to put people in their context rather than hold them up and put them on a pedestal and try and imagine that they're some kind of superhuman thinker. We're all humans and we all get our ideas from places. So the real parallel is that there are competing ideas and the way that we make progress as humans, as of course we have, is to embrace those competing ideas and to have systems that allow those competing ideas to be sifted and to pick out the right ones. You can't just have a free-for-all because, as we've seen, actually sometimes the false ideas get embraced. And that's one of the lessons of the Middle Ages is that actually you can progress quite a long way along a wrong path before people realize that you've taken a wrong turn and have to go back and start again. So you can't assume that progress is linear or automatic. You have to work at it. But the big difference between the Middle Ages and today is that we have systematized these things a lot more. And the Middle Ages was done by anybody who was interested, anybody who had the ability, and mostly they were working on their own in correspondence with or in collaboration with other people. There was a huge amount of collaboration, a huge amount of communication, but it wasn't done in this kind of systematic way. We now know what a scientist is. A scientist is somebody who works in a laboratory. A scientist is somebody who receives huge amounts of funding from either the state or private sector in order to carry out well-defined projects. Everything is super organized. And that kind of organization is what has allowed science to make the progress that it has in the last couple of centuries. And so we shouldn't underestimate the value of that. I can't help but think of markets for all of their ills. When they function well, one of their great virtues is the collision of many different ideas and seeing what works and doesn't, especially in iterated fashion. 
So Seb, you read your own audiobook, which I thought was very impressive <laughs> in addition to, to much else, but you've done this book now. It's been a success. What is next for you? Well, I'm working on another book, which broadens this out a little bit because this book is focused really on late medieval England, although many of the ideas were common across Europe and into Asia. I'm working on another book which tries to broaden this out and looks at the kinds of ideas and the kinds of ways of thinking that were happening in the Middle Ages in China and in the Middle East and in Europe and in India and comparing them and talking about some of the interesting characters there. Because I think there's a couple of things that people don't realize, first of all, that the world in the year 1000 was actually a more connected place than people realize. That's something that people are starting to accept and starting to understand at the moment. But the fact that people who are doing science are coming up with different ideas in this period, despite their connections, because of their cultural backgrounds, that somebody who approaches science from a Christian point of view does so in a different way from somebody who is a Muslim, from somebody who is a Confucian. Trying to think about these things in Western terms as religions is already problematic. So it requires different ways of thinking. But the new book hopefully will broaden all this out so that we think about the Middle Ages in a global way. Oh, that's exciting. I'm looking forward to that. We always ask our guests a final question of, what are you reading these days? What are you really enjoying? I've been reading a, a bunch of different books at the moment, coming towards the end of a book called Soul Mountain by Gao Xinjian, who's China's first Nobel Prize winning novelist, which is a fascinating, kind of an odd book, but I've really enjoyed it. And I'm reading a wonderful book of poetry by Sean Hewitt, a young Irish, English Irish poet. I try and keep a few books on the go. In fact, the next book on my list I'm really looking forward to, because I haven't read it for years, is Ursula Le Guin, The Earthsea Quartet. It was a trilogy when I first read it, and now I don't know how many books she ended up writing in the end, but I haven't read that since I was about 12, so that's next on my list. So try and keep things broad, but I'm immersing myself in China at the moment, so I'm enjoying some of that stuff. The Le Guin trilogies and all of her work, of course, are tremendous landmarks in science fiction literature. And I always find, I shouldn't say always, but most of the time I find prolific readers gravitate towards poetry because that's the densest, greatest stuff is with the most economy. Seb Falk, it's been great speaking with you. Thanks so much for being a guest. Well, thank you very much for having me, inviting me. our talk with Seb Falk. I'm always reminded in these kinds of studies about how people used to view religion and science as copacetic and informative of each other, a sense of awe and wonder about the natural world that complements modes of belief. At least in that way, our modernism seems to often miss that awe and wonder. But also, it illustrates just how much the West owes to developments in the Near and Middle East. Scholars of that era brought forward not only mathematics and language, but were tremendous Greek scholars in their own right. Join us in two weeks on May 26th for our talk with one of the scientific luminaries of our current era, Sean B. Carroll, noted evolutionary biologist, best-selling author, and film producer, among many, many other achievements. We talk about Sean's new book, dealing with the role of chance and randomness in just about all parts of life. A wider knowledge of chance is something all investors should keep constantly in mind, and Sean shows us how a little bit of chance is in everything that we do. So until then, may all your reading profit your mind and your money. Take care.
Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. The content of this podcast represents the opinions and viewpoints of Fisher Investments and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. No assurances are made we will continue to hold these views, which may change at any time, based on new information, analysis, or reconsideration. The opinions and viewpoints of podcast guests are not necessarily those of Fisher Investments. Copyright Fisher Investments 2021.